As we uh, continue in our thought of the first Adam and second Adam, tonight we're going to look at uh, Jesus as the superior prophet, priest, and king. We often talk about Jesus fulfilling those three offices, if you will, of prophet, priest, and king. They are uh, offices and functions that are found in the Old Testament. They are not hard and fast distinctions for the responsibilities often overlapped. Uh, as you think of King David, obviously he was a king, but he certainly was a prophet. And we have uh, many prophecies that he has given. He gave us the Psalms. Uh, so he, he wrote the Word of God. Uh, we have Moses, who was primarily a prophet, but also occupied and performed some priestly functions. So that there's an overlap. Uh, and responsibility. They're not hard and fast distinctions, but yet they were primary responsibilities that people uh, would exercise in the Old Testament. They were primarily a prophet. They were primarily a priest. They were primarily a king. But all of them were intended to not only foreshadow, but to illustrate and to instruct us concerning that which was to come, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, who would occupy and fulfill all those responsibilities of prophet, priest, and king, and would fulfill them in a way that was far superior than anyone who came before him, and that all of their responsibilities were to, again, demonstrate what God had originally intended for mankind fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So as we look at these three offices tonight, we're going to emphasize the fact that Jesus is superior to any who went before him and occupied these particular offices. So first, Jesus is the superior prophet to Moses. Jesus was superior to Jonah. We read that in Matthew 12, 41. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation as a judgment and shall condemn it because they repented of the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Referring to Jesus. Jesus was superior to Solomon. Matthew 12, 42. The queen of the south shall rise up with generation at the judgment and shall condemn it. Because she came forth from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So here the application is, if people are going to repent at the preaching of Noah, uh, excuse me, at Jonah, and there is someone greater than Jonah that is here, how much more should we repent having heard the message of Jesus Christ? And we can talk about the ways in which he was superior in his willingness to serve the Father. Jonah was not. But the point is, you need to repent. If repentance was required under the preaching of Jonah, how much more under the preaching of Jesus? If people traveled great distances people of great renown, such as the Queen of Sheba, in order to hear the wisdom of Solomon, how much more should we be open and willing to hear the wisdom of Jesus Christ, for he is far superior than Solomon? But what we focus on is that Jesus was superior to Moses. Moses was viewed as the most significant, most important prophet of the Old Testament. And yet Jesus is superior to Moses. Moses prophesied that God would raise up a prophet like Moses. Deuteronomy 18.15 The Lord your God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Jumping down to Deuteronomy 18.17 And the Lord said to me, 
they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. So there was going to be a prophet that was going to be like Moses in the sense that he was to be heard. He was to be obeyed. He was to be followed. The New Testament identifies that prophet as Jesus. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, From ancient time, Moses said, The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed. And so the New Testament says, well, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Jesus was superior to Moses in his intimacy with God. Deuteronomy 34.10 Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. There was an intimacy that Moses had to God that no other prophet enjoyed. Uh, He was given more insight into the workings of God and the plan of God more than any other prophet. Uh, He had interaction with God in a way that other prophets didn't. They They had visions from time to time. But, but the commune of Moses was really quite extraordinary. But that pales in relationship to Jesus Christ. John 1.18 No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So that Moses, even though he had this great intimacy with God, he didn't actually see God. But Jesus was actually in the very bosom of God. He was in the presence of God. He was with God from the foundation of the earth and before. For all eternity past, the Son of God had fellowship with the other members of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then, God the Son took upon himself flesh. So that Jesus had a knowledge of God, an intimacy with God, that far surpassed Moses. Jesus was superior to Moses in his relationship to the law. John 1.17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Moses gave the commands, but Jesus actually fulfilled them. He actually was a realization, a manifestation of God's grace and God's truth. In the Old Testament, Moses had pleaded with God that Moses would be able to see the glory of God. And as he is on the mount, God said to Moses, you cannot see my face, meaning you can't see this fully or you would die. But uh, he put him in a cleft of a rock and it says that the, the shadow passed by. He was able to see a shadow of the presence of God. And then... These words were declared to him as to what his glory was. And that glory that was revealed to Moses was that uh, he would punish 
iniquity, but yet at the same time have mercy and grace for generations that were to come. He was a God of justice and at the same time a God of mercy and of grace. Moses had the privilege of proclaiming that message. Jesus lived it out. Jesus embodied it. Jesus uh, fleshed that out. He was the essence of truth. He, he spoke the truth. He died for the truth. And so he was also that instrument of God's grace. He showed the justice of God, that punishment for sin had to take place, so he died on the cross, and he was the means by which man could be reconciled to God. So he was the instrument of God's grace. Jesus was superior to Moses in the supply of of manna. In John chapter 6, verse 32, Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. In the context, Jesus had just fed the multitudes, and they want Jesus to continue to feed them. And, of course, he's unwilling to do so. And they try to manipulate Jesus into perpetually feeding them by saying that Moses was greater than he because Moses fed them for 40 years. Moses had uh, done this uh, daily for them. And then Jesus corrects them and says, no, 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 Moses didn't do this. God did it. Uh, Moses was just an instrument. Uh, He didn't actually provide the manna. It was God who provided the manna. Moses didn't have the capability of doing that. And then he goes on to say, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They therefore said to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. So not only did Moses not provide it, but that bread was not the ultimate bread that would actually give eternal life. Jesus actually provides it. He is the one that actually brings about our eternal life. Next, Jesus was superior to Moses. For he not only provided Israel with water, he was the source of the very water. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. So in the Old Testament, when the children of Israel were... In the wilderness, they were in a desert area. They were parched. They were without water. Uh, God provided for them a rock. And Moses was told to speak to that rock and water would flow. But instead, he was disobedient. And he struck that rock twice, which resulted in his not being allowed to enter the promised land. He was able to see it from Mount Pisgah, but he was not actually allowed to enter in. And Moses provided the children of Israel with water. But you see, he didn't actually do anything but be the instrument. He wasn't the water itself. We find out that Jesus is that that rock. Jesus is the one who provides the true water, that, that nourishment that we need. Jesus had a surpassing glory to Moses. Hebrews 3.1 Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of heavenly calling, uh, consider Jesus, the apostle, high priest of our confession. He is faithful to him, appointed to him as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. He was worthy of more glory than Moses was. 
down to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. But if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel should not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how should the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? Jump down to 2 Corinthians 3.13, the underlying section. Uh, look at the verse before, verse 12. Having therefore such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech, and are not as Moses, who put a, to put a veil over his face, that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away. What happened was, when Moses would be in the very presence of God, in the tabernacle or on the mount, when he came away from the presence of God, his face shone. That there was an actual representation on his face of this incredible experience of being in the very presence of God. And his face shone brightly. The scripture says that after that took place, he would put a veil over his face. And the purpose of the veil was to hide the fact that over time, his face didn't shine any longer. It's like a suntan. You know, you're out in the sun, and you get dark. But after a period of time, when you're away from the sun, when uh, winter comes, you begin to fade. You get back to your natural complexion. Well, in somewhat like manner, when he was in the presence of God, his face would shine. But when he was away from the presence of God, his face would begin to pale. And so that people wouldn't see that, he put a veil over his face. Then, 2 Corinthians 3.14 says, But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. In other words, it uses this as an imagery that the children of Israel, the Jewish people who were trusting in the law to be their deliverer, who thought they were going to have a right relationship with God by keeping the law, that veil was still covering the law. They failed to see that the law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That in that sense, it was fading away. The purpose of the law was to bring people to Christ. And when people come to Christ, the veil is lifted. It's seen that the real glory is not in the law. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. So John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. So they were able to see the glory in Jesus. Now, Jesus' face did not shine. Jesus' face didn't shine. Uh, it wasn't radiant. He looked like everyone else. You know, you watch the movies and you get the impression that 
maybe Jesus' face shown because you know you have these representations and pictures, you know, and there are rays coming off, especially baby Jesus. Well, uh, you know, baby Jesus didn't shine with rays coming off of him. He didn't have that incredibly low voice that he often has in the films. And you knew that he was God because nobody sounds like that. Uh, He didn't have that kind of voice. He wasn't head and shoulders above everybody else. All these representations of who Jesus is are grossly uh, misleading because they're not in keeping with what the the Word of God says. There's no comeliness that we should admire him or desire him. There was nothing about his physical makeup that made him stand apart. But what was unique about Jesus was that he was a man full of grace and truth. The way in which he lived his life. The glory of the way in which he ministered to the, to the sick. The way in which he removed the oppression of individuals. The way that he showed the love of God at the same time that he administered the truth of God's word. Stood for it. Died for it. That was unique. And then lastly, and most importantly perhaps, Jesus was superior to Moses in the deliverance that he wrought. Therefore, let it be known, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things. As you think about Moses as a leader and as a prophet, his greatest accomplishment is the leading of the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of their bondage, into a land of freedom flowing with milk and honey. That is a representation, a foreshadowing, a depiction of the ministry of Jesus Christ who leads us out of our bondage of sin and leads us into the very presence of God where we're going to enjoy His presence in a new heaven and new earth forever and ever. He has freed us from all things. Everything. Moses freed them from the land of Egypt. He's going to free us from all pain, all misery, all suffering, all heartache, all things. So he is far, far superior to Moses. Moses gives us a sense of what Jesus is fully about. Secondly, Jesus is superior to priest to Aaron and Moses. Jesus is the superior high priest because he ministers in the true tabernacle, not a representation of the true. Hebrews 9.11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Hebrews 8.4, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. The tabernacle that was built in the Old Testament was a replica of the tabernacle that existed in heaven. It was a production of a vision that Moses received. But it wasn't the true tabernacle. It was a representation. If you want to, uh, you can go and see a modern day replica of the tabernacle at the Mennonite Information Center. But I'll tell you, I've been there a number of times. It's informational. It's helpful. It gives you a sense of the dimensions. It's nowhere near as big as I think we tend to think it is. It's very helpful to see the dimensions of the tabernacle. But 
gold paint pales in relationship to pure, glistening gold. It's tawdry. You know, not that they didn't do their best, but it's tawdry. It's nowhere near what the true Old Testament tabernacle was. But as tawdry as the tabernacle at the Mennonite Information Center is in relationship to the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the tabernacle in the Old Testament is even more tawdry than the true tabernacle that exists in the presence of God. And it is in that tabernacle that Jesus performs his high priestly ministry. Jesus is a superior high priest because he administers a superior covenant. Hebrews 8.6 But now he obtained a more excellent ministry by, much, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. In the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember that as it's placed in the tabernacle, is just that. It was an ark. It was a box that contained the covenant, which was the Ten Commandments. That was the main purpose of that box. Later, the rod of, uh, of Aaron was added, as well as uh, the pot of manna. But originally, it was just that ark that contained the covenant. And they would minister that, uh, at that ark. And it was placed in the most holy place. And on top of that ark, there were uh, two angels with their wings spread like this. One on one side, one on the other side. They, they, their wings would meet in the middle. And on the lid of that ark is what is known as the mercy seat. And it would be the place where the blood that was offered on the altar that was outside the tabernacle, or at least outside of the holy place, that blood would be brought into the holy place by the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle that mercy seat. Because it was the place, the symbol was, here's the place where God's law and God's justice meet. The law was broken. Therefore, blood had to be shed. Well, we find out in the New Testament that Jesus is the propitiation. And you've heard me say it often, that that word propitiation is actually a Greek word, which means mercy seat. Jesus is the place where God's law and God's mercy meets. He is that place where that blood is shed. Which brings us to see. Jesus is the superior high priest because he offers not the sacrifice of goats and bulls, but the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9.11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. So here he comes as high priest, not carrying blood from goats and bulls, which can never take away sin, but rather with his own blood that was shed for us. And then lastly, Jesus is a superior high priest, because his ministry never ends. <coughs> Hebrews 7.14 and following. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Uh, the priestly line came from the tribe of Levi. Jesus did not. 
And this is clearer still. Another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. In the time of Abraham, there was a priest that was known by the name of Melchizedek. Melchizedek kind of came out of the blue. We don't know where he came from. We don't know what happened to him. So, he represents this priest that has no beginning and no end. Now, obviously he did. Melchizedek was born. Melchizedek was died. But we don't know anything. uh, And Melchizedek died. But we don't know anything about his birth. And we don't know anything about his death. For he was this illustration of this prophet. Not from the line of Levi. Excuse me, a priest. Not from the line of Levi. But one that had no beginning and had no end. And so, it says that he is in the order of Melchizedek. He's like Melchizedek, not like Levi. He is this priest with no beginning and no end, except for Jesus, it is real. Uh, that uh, he is eternal. Thou art forever uh, a priest, forever according to the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews 7.25. Hence, also, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Uh, we listened to the men's ensemble right now, uh, tonight, and the question was, where is he now? And the answer was, he is in heaven interceding for us. He is. He, right now, is pleading our case before the throne of God. Satan is bringing accusation against us. But it is meaningless because Jesus is coming on our behalf. He's interceding for us. He offered his blood. He's obtained our forgiveness. And then lastly, Jesus is superior to the king David. Luke one thirty two. He will be great and he'll be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. On the last page, there are just a bunch of references. I'm not going to read them all, but on page 7, there are all these references to Jesus as the son of David. There is a lot of imagery packed up in that. That the throne of David continues on in the person of Jesus Christ. But not only is that throne continued on, but it is greatly enhanced. And let's look at the ways it is enhanced. First, Jesus is the superior king because he always does the will of God. Acts 13.22 And after he moved him, that is Saul, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do my will. David becomes this king who God delights in because David wants to do the will of God. He is far superior than Saul in that regard. And David becomes the measuring rod by which all subsequent kings are measured. Either they are like David or they are not like David. And then when they are like David in the ways in which they depart from David... David is the king of kings in the Old Testament. He's the benchmark. 
And he is the one that the Word of God says that he was a man after God's own heart and that he did the will of God. But none of us have to think too long and too hard to come up with instances in which David failed in doing the will of God. And where David was not this person that was leading Israel in the way it should go. We know the story of Bathsheba. We know how he had her husband murdered and killed. We know that David was a man and failed in many ways. Jesus never failed in doing the will of God. And as much as God delighted in David, far more he delights in his beloved son in whom, the scripture says, he is well pleased. So, Hebrew 10.7 says, Then I said, Behold, this is the words referring to Jesus, I have come in the role of the book. It is written of me to do thy will of God. After saying above, sacrifice and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of his body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus came to do the will of God. And do it he did. Completely. Unreservedly. Without exception. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And it all led up into the ultimate purpose and will of God, and that is that he would die for us. And he did not shirk from that responsibility. But he fulfilled it. That's what he came to do. He came to die. And die he did. And the scripture says, and we're set apart by that will. We have been forgiven all of our trespasses. All of our sins have been taken away because Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for our sin. But but much more than that, not only was he the payment for our sin, but he also was the bestowal of righteousness. For he positively fulfilled the law by doing all that the law required. By fulfilling it completely. And then that is attributed to our account. Next. Jesus is the spirit king because he reigns over all things. Philippians 2.9 Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Those in heaven on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus said in the book of Matthew... All authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. David's kingdom was geographical. David's kingdom was limited. He reigned over more territory than any of the other kings of Israel because it was divided, of course, uh, later. uh, And David's kingdom was expansive. But it certainly didn't cover the whole earth. It didn't even cover all the Mideast. It was a small kingdom. Jesus reigns over all things. Far superior to David. See, Jesus is the superior king because his kingship never ends. 
Luke 1, 32 and 33. He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. David had to pass his kingdom on because he would die. Jesus never dies. His kingdom lasts forever and ever. Never going to pass it on uh, to another human being in, in subsequence to himself. He, Jesus, is pure king of David because he delivers us from all our enemies. Luke 2.11 For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Acts 2.34 For it was not David who ascended into heaven but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 1 Corinthians 15.25 For he must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15.26 The last enemy which is abolished is death. David was a warrior. David's primary function in the nation was to subdue uh, Israel's enemies. He fought against the Philistines. He fought against the opponents of God. The great Bible story that we all know is David fighting Goliath. The purpose of David's kingship was to provide protection for the children of Israel from their enemies round about. David was able to do that in a very limited sense. He is the prototype of the one who is going to come, who is going to deliver us from all of our enemies. So the psalmist tells us, that he's going to make a table for us in the presence of our enemies. We're going to picnic as our enemies are round about us. And of course, there's that day coming in which the kingdom is going to be established and every enemy is going to be ultimately and completely removed. That's our Jesus. The complete and utter fulfillment of all that is partially, partially seen in the Old Testament. Of this, pre, of this prophet who knows some and has some intimacy compared with a Jesus who knows all things and has complete intimacy. The priest who is bringing about forgiveness of sins as it is proclaimed and foreshadowed in the sacrificial system, but Jesus who actually brings to pass and accomplishes that forgiveness once and for all. For us. And that great king, who in the Old Testament set up a small dominion over which the uh, nations would be uh, protected. Protected. Um, let's look at D. I forgot D, but it's important on page six. Jesus is the superior king because of the perfection of his rule. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Great Christmas verse. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, 
and the government will rest upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts has accomplished this. The second purpose for the king of Israel was not only to bring peace and safety to the nation in removing them from the enemies that surrounded them, but it was to administer justice, goodness, righteousness. And so in the Old Testament, you have kings that show us different elements of this. For example, Solomon. When you think of Solomon, you think of wisdom. Wisdom. And we already read a verse that says there's a greater than Solomon here. In his wisdom, he was far superior to Solomon. In the decisions that he made. As you think of David, as he seeks to administer justice, there was someone that was far more just than what David was. You think of all the the qualities. And an interesting study of the kings of the Old Testament is to look at the particular qualities that their kingship demonstrated. Like, Like, for example, Josiah, who removed the high places and restored the, the true worship of God. But you see, there's nobody that does that like Jesus. It took a host of all these kings in the Old Testament to give us a facsimile of a taste of what it's going to be like to be under the kingship of Jesus Christ. No one was able to do any one thing greater than what Jesus did. And collectively, collectively, with all their strengths, they were not able to replicate what Jesus alone can do. But we're to see, we're to see what it could be like. That's the Old Testament. What might it be like to have a priest like Jesus, to have a prophet like Jesus, to have a king like Jesus. And we do. And it's going to be great. And Jesus came to be that perfect prophet, that perfect priest, that perfect king. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the Lord Jesus, our perfect prophet, priest, and king. Thank you for all that you have fulfilled in him and through him. Thank you for being allowed to be a part of his kingdom. And Lord, we look forward to the time in which Jesus is going to return to this earth and be that perfect prophet, priest, and king for all eternity future. And so we say, even so come, Lord Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.